You're going to love this. Just love it. Radio in Los Angeles. This is the Bradcast. I'm Bradcast producer Desi Doyen. We're off today for the Martin Luther King Jr. holiday, but we've put together some of our most important recent interviews that you may have missed. A best of the Bradcast, or as we like to call it, Bradcast Recounted. Coming up on today's program, Brad's eye-opening discussion with former congressman and diplomat Tom Periello, who draws on his extensive experience in conflict resolution and transitional justice in war-torn countries to explain why the best way for Joe Biden to help heal the country is to look both forward and back to ensure justice and accountability for the outgoing Trump administration, especially in the wake of the deadly insurrectionist attack on the U.S. Capitol on January 6th. But first, former federal prosecutor Ben Clements of the nonprofit good government group Free Speech for People explains the legality of whether Trump can pardon himself and why the Constitution demands the historic second impeachment of Donald Trump. After inciting a mob of his angry supporters to attack the Capitol, President Trump attempted to backtrack by posting a video of him woodenly acknowledging his electoral defeat, sort of, and suddenly denouncing the violent insurrection he helped to instigate just one day earlier. But according to a report by the New York Times today, he reportedly only did so, only made that video in an attempt to avoid potentially being held legally accountable for the riot. The Times reports that Trump did not want to make the speech at all at first and was only convinced to do so after White House counsel warned him on Wednesday night that he could face a criminal investigation for actively encouraging his supporters to storm the Capitol in a clash that left at least five people, uh, now including a Capitol Hill police officer, dead. Only then did Trump reluctantly agree to tape a video, which many remarked appeared uh, not unlike a forced hostage video, condemning his supporters' attack, even though he had privately enjoyed it. According to The Times, he had previously issued a statement praising the insurrectionists as, quote, very special and telling them, quote, we love you. In a video that was removed by Twitter and resulted in his account being locked for a number of hours, The social media company has since shamefully restored his access to the account where he made this uh, rather wooden video. The president in that hostage video on Thursday night claimed that his, quote, focus now turns to ensuring a smooth, orderly and seamless transition of power and that this moment calls for healing and reconciliation. He and the White House happened to post the video just several hours after acting U.S. attorney for the District of Columbia, Michael Sherwin, 
left the door open for a potential criminal investigation into Trump, saying, quote, we are looking at all actors here and anyone that had a role. If the evidence evidence fits the element of a crime, they are going to be charged, he said. Trump's attempt to pretend his way out of the mess that he created for himself also comes after about a dozen staffers, now including two cabinet members, the wife of Mitch McConnell, Elaine Chow, who headed up the Department of Transportation, and Education Secretary Betsy DeVos, who says she's had enough as of the siege of the Capitol, though only after four employees of Blackwater, a paramilitary security company owned by her own brother, Eric Prince, were pardoned by the president recently for their roles in the war crimes massacre of more than a dozen Iraqi civilians some years ago. So as the rats are leaving Trump's sinking ship, um, after years of fealty to him, Uh, Some are, well, trying to save themselves, trying to save the president. It's unclear. Secretary of State Mike Pompeo and Treasury Secretary Steve Mnuchin, two rats who are still on board, reportedly held informal discussions with staffers on having Trump removed from office through the 25th Amendment after he instigated that violent insurrection at the Capitol on Wednesday, according to CNBC. The top Trump officials, however, ultimately decided against invoking that constitutional provision, reportedly due to concerns of angering the president's base and that there wouldn't be enough time to carry out the proceedings before he has to leave office on January 20 anyway. A former official uh, familiar with the discussions, told CNBC that, quote, the general plan now is to let the clock run out. He says there will be a reckoning for this president, but it doesn't hap- doesn't need to happen in the next 13 days. Democrats, meanwhile, have been pressuring Vice President Mike Pence and the cabinet to invoke the 25th Amendment ever since Trump inspired his supporters to take over the Capitol building on Wednesday. During a press conference on Thursday, House Speaker Nancy Pelosi warned of a potential second impeachment for Trump if Pence and cabinet secretaries refuse to have the president removed. On Friday, she called for Trump's immediate resignation or vowed that articles of impeachment would be filed for a second time on Monday. But before that siege on Wednesday this past week at the Capitol, on Tuesday, our friends John Bonifaz, Ron Fine, and Ben Clements, longtime attorneys with the nonpartisan, nonprofit, good government accountability group Free Speech for People, were already calling for Trump's second impeachment. As usual, they were ahead of the crowd. On Sunday, they wrote in a Boston Globe op-ed on Tuesday, America heard a recording of a phone call in which President Trump pressured Georgia Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger to, quote, find 11,780 votes to reverse the state's presidential election result. Yes, that also happened over this past week. In case, like me, you had already pretty much completely forgotten about that stunning recording in which the president tried to convince Georgia's top election official to change election results to steal the election in the peach state for Donald Trump. 
Uh, Clements, Bonifaz, and Fine writes, some say we should focus on moving forward and putting this presidency in the rear view forever. But for the survival of our constitutional democracy, they wrote, again, before the Trump riot on Capitol Hill, Congress must impeach him again. And this time, they say, disqualify him from future federal office. Joining us now is one of the three authors of that op-ed. Ben Clements is board chair and senior legal advisor at Free Speech for People. And perhaps uh, even more importantly today is a former federal prosecutor and an attorney in both the private and public sectors for more than 30 years with an expertise in constitutional law. Welcome back to the broadcast, Mr. Clements. Thank you, Brad. Good to be with you. Ah, boy. All right. There was a lot to cover in that intro. But again, uh, kudos for being ahead of the crowd for uh, jumping in and calling for impeachment, a second impeachment, even before what we saw on Wednesday at the Capitol. Let me pick up where your op ed does on the need to impeach Trump. Uh, Why is an impeachment with just two weeks left so important to you and John and Ron as you see it? Well, for, for several reasons, uh, Brad, uh, you know, at the, at the time we wrote uh, the op-ed, we were only dealing with the, the first major set of felonies that the president uh, committed this week um, in the effort to falsify the Georgia election results in his favor. Um, at this point, we, we obviously have uh, a, a second set of felonies in connection with this incitement of seditious mob on Congress, um, which creates uh, an even greater urgency. Mm-hmm. Um, but the uh, initial concern and the main point of our article uh, is that th- there is really, for the most part, only one sure way to ensure that Donald Trump is not permitted to again run for office in this country, as indeed he is grossly unfit, we all know now, uh, to hold any office, let alone the presidency of the United States. And that way is through the impeachment power. Congress has the power to impeach, and if the Senate convicts, uh, a officer can be removed, which is what people most associate with impeachment, mm-hmm. but they can also be disqualified from ever holding federal office again. And so that, uh, aside from the removal, which is uh, now needed more urgently than ever, um, there is the need to disqualify him uh, to prevent him from running in 2024 uh, or for running for anything else uh, at any time uh, in the federal government. Is, is being barred from holding future uh, federal office, is that automatically a part of a successful impeachment? In other words, if uh, the, last uh, February the Senate had voted to remove him, would he automatically be barred from uh, holding office in the future? Or is that something they have to specifically state in uh, articles of impeachment? They do have to specifically. Well, it doesn't have to be specifically stated in the articles of impeachment. Mm-hmm. So the Articles of Impeachment set forth the basis for the impeachment. It sets forth the high crimes and misdemeanors. And then um, removal tends to be automatic, uh, although technically what what happens is the Senate votes whether or not to convict. Mm -hmm. And so the the first thing is for the Senate to vote, and you need a two-thirds vote to convict on 
the uh, impeachment charges. Mm-hmm. And then there is what, what is sort of the equivalent to, in criminal law, sentencing. And so sentencing typically automatically in, in an impeachment context will include removal. But then the Senate needs to specifically vote and approve language that disqualifies uh. the official uh, from holding office again. Okay, so that is that's I guess the step that we did not get to at the beginning of the year that sentencing part where we would have uh, learned about that. So exactly, had the Senate done their duty, or or had the fifty-two members of of the Republicans in the Senate done their duty rather than uh, sided with and enabled Donald Trump uh, to continue to tear down the nation and bring us what we saw earlier this week, Mm -hmm. um, they would have then taken the next step of, are they going to just remove him or are they also going to disqualify him from future office? Got it. And just since I mentioned uh, how you guys, as usual, were ahead of the curve, uh, Desi Doyen came across some of this audio from... a, a younger Ben Clements back in February of 2020. Uh, we were all much younger then, yeah, Brad. Yeah, exactly. Uh, saying this, I think, in front of the uh, was this in in Boston at the at the courthouse? I, I believe it was. It was actually a, a rally on the Boston Common, uh, and I think I was uh, uh, on the steps of the Boston, of the Massachusetts State House. Here's uh, Ben Clements rabble rousing February 6, 2020, right after uh, uh, I guess uh, Trump had been acquitted. Guilty. 52 Guilty. senators Guilty. who adopted that sick, twisted, and self-destructive logic today in voting not to remove Donald Trump. For all of them, they are no longer just his enablers. They are his co-conspirators. Well, uh, you nailed that one, Ben. Uh, that said, is there any reason to believe those co-conspirators would be any less co-conspiratory uh, if there was a second impeachment at this point? Well, uh, there may be. Uh, I- I'm not going to be overly optimistic. It, it-, it does take two-thirds um, to convict, mm-hmm. uh, as we know. Um, on the other hand, uh, there have thankfully been uh, some changes in the Senate, but the biggest impact of those changes is not so much that there are now a relatively small number closer to the number you needed just on the Democratic side, mm-hmm. but that the Democrats will control the Senate, and, and Chuck Schumer, of course, mm-hmm. uh, is, is going to be the Senate uh, majority leader, um, and so they will control the process mm-hmm. and the trial of impeachment. Uh, and, and so that that is a, a very different situation than what we had a year ago yep. when uh, the Ukraine extortion, election interference, impeachment articles were delivered to the Senate. We didn't have a real trial. We had a sham trial. Yep. The, there was essentially no evidence presented in the Senate, and they, they simply railroaded it to a vote to acquit. Mm-hmm. Um, that one had happened this time. You're right. This time, uh, the the Senate could hold a real trial and put a lot more pressure on people on the Republican side of the fence to decide: Are they going to stand up and vote to acquit someone who waged war on our democracy and incited the seditious mob? And I had completely forgotten about uh, about that part, piecing that together since the uh, Democrats have just gained a uh, controlling majority just days ago that, yeah, at this point, 
I guess it only takes a, a majority vote. Uh, presumably, a uh, the vice president Kamala Harris eventually would would be able to break that tie to call for witnesses in an actual trial. Now, exactly, which which really could could be a game changer. Might have been a game changer back in uh, January and February, but now for sure. Now, Ben, uh, I know that people are you know thinking here. Well, this timeline is impossible. This entire process before January 20th, by the way, Kamala Harris wouldn't even be vice president before then. But it's not actually necessary, as you note in your op ed, that this all be done by January 20. In fact, uh, impeachment proceedings can take place even after a president is out of office. Well, that's correct. And, and in fact, there, there is historical precedent uh, of impeachment articles being brought against a federal official who, in an effort to avoid being impeached and convicted, promptly resigned uh, before the House could actually vote on the impeachment articles. Uh, but the House went ahead uh, and voted on the impeachment anyway, uh, and then it, it went to the Senate, and there was, in fact, a trial. So, yes, the precedent is clear that even once his term is over, Trump can still be impeached and he can be convicted in the Senate and he could there'd no longer obviously be the need for removal, mm. um, but he then could uh, be disqualified from holding federal office ever again. And uh, as as you note, the makeup of the Senate it will be a little bit different, and some of the Republicans may be feeling different as well. I'm just getting this breaking news, Ben, from AP saying that Republican Senator Lisa Murkowski tells an Alaska newspaper that Trump should resign, saying, quote, I want him out. That would seem to underscore the idea that uh, there could be a very different, uh, uh, you know, a sense of thought amongst Republicans uh, if, in fact, Donald Trump is put on trial once again in the Senate. Uh, you also note that uh, in your Boston Globe op-ed, um, a renewed impeachment would also put Congress in a stronger position to challenge a potential presidential self-pardon. Now, I would argue that I believe, in my opinion, it is pretty much ironclad guarantee that he is going to self-pardon himself, or at least he is going to try. Um, he's going to attempt. Yeah, yes. he's going to uh, try. Perhaps he will attempt, uh, although uh, I, I certainly don't believe, and, and I think uh, most legal constitutional scholars uh, would agree with me that such an attempt would be invalid and not of any legal effect. Mm. Well, I hope you're right about that. How would a how would a renewed impeachment, as you describe it, uh, put Congress in a stronger position to challenge that self pardon? Well, in, in a couple ways. One, the Constitution does specifically provide that pardons in the case of impeachment are not available, and that is language that has not been fully interpreted. And there are there are arguments that um, not only uh, does that prevent a president from pardoning someone against, including himself and others, against uh, the consequences of impeachment and removal, but that it also limits the authority to issue pardons that relate to um, impeachment proceedings. And, mm -hmm. and so to the extent we're talking about overlapping charges mm -hmm. between the impeachment uh, and um, criminal charges, uh, that would be an additional reason why the pardon mm. um, uh, could be uh, invalid. 
Um, and also, of course, if they succeed in removing him, although, as you point out, that's unlikely in the next 14 days, uh, once he's removed, he's no longer in a position uh, to, to pardon anybody. Mm-hmm. And I guess that's one of the reasons why you're saying this time when they impeach him again, they should do it for a whole long laundry list of things that if they are included, I guess that would make it more complicated for him to self-pardon. Ben, I've got just a a couple more minutes here. Let me hit a few more points quickly Uh, on Thursday night. A uh, Capitol Police officer uh, died following the confrontations with the uh, Trump uh, attempted insurgent uh, insurgency on Wednesday. Does that make Donald Trump an accessory to uh, murder or manslaughter uh, or whatever it's determined to be as you see it? And is that even an impeachable offense or is that a separate criminal matter entirely? Well, it may it may well be both, Brad. Um, cer- certainly. As the U.S. Attorney in the District of Columbia has acknowledged, they, they are, uh, he, he tells us, uh, investigating all possible responsible parties uh, mm-hmm. for this seditious attack on Congress. And, and he, he included, uh, when asked, the president in that group. And there is very well-established federal law that when you participate in a, in a conspiracy, or when you aid and abet crime, but but particularly when you engage in a conspiracy, you can be held legally responsible for the foreseeable acts of your co-conspirators. And I don't think there's any question that when you look at the speech that Trump gave to those people who attacked Congress yesterday, mm-hmm. and you look at what he has said on, on his Twitter feed uh, in, in recent days and weeks, and you look at his promotion of violence in general, Uh, over the last four years, uh, it was absolutely foreseeable that the people that he conspired with, that he urged to attack Congress, would engage in violence uh, and and that people could be killed. So, yes, I think it's a very real live question whether the president is liable for those deaths. Did you get the sense, uh, as I described that hostage video he released on, uh, on Thursday night, did you get the, uh, the sense that that was sort of a, a CYA video that he was trying to uh, put out after getting scared about exactly that? A hundred percent. And, of course, you're exactly right to contrast it uh, with the video that he made uh, the day before mm-hmm. a- after after having watched, apparently, reportedly with glee, uh, as his mob attacked Congress, he told them all uh, that he loved them and that they're very special people. So his efforts to condemn them uh, in, in the hostage tape the next night uh, are, are, are not credible. Uh, and it, it's quite clear whether, whether it's that he thinks or his lawyers think that that might help him avoid a criminal rap, or whether he was told that he needs to get up there and do that, or they're going to invoke the 25th Amendment, uh, it seems pretty clear that he, he was coerced into making that tape. And I guess anybody who might have coerced him in some way, presuming it wasn't his, his lawyer, but uh, family members or anybody else who, who told him, hey, you have to make this video, uh, I guess they could be called into court uh, or even into an impeachment to explain why it was he made that video and why, you know, what they told him in the bargain. Ben, looking forward, 
beyond the moment uh, right now, the uh, p- potential of the 25th Amendment, the potential of impeachment. Beyond that, Free Speech for People released a public letter today, I believe, calling on Judge Merrick Garland, who is now President-elect Biden's designated choice for attorney general, urging uh, Garland to create an independent task force in the DOJ to investigate, quote, any potential federal criminal or civil violations that may have com- been committed by President Trump, members of his administration or his campaign, business or other associates. Well, that's going to have to be a pretty big task force, Ben. But why do you find it necessary to send this letter. I mean, can't we presume that the Biden DOJ will, in fact, move to investigate all manner of potential uh, Trump crimes? Well, one would hope. And and just to, to clarify really quick, Brad, the, it may need to be a big task force, but part of what we were recommending was a task force that could coordinate investigations that, that may be going on, and some of them we know have been going on, in different divisions of the Justice Department around the country. For mm-hmm. example, the U.S. Attorney's Office in the Southern District of New York has had uh, a number of investigations that relate to criminal activity of Donald Trump, uh, including, of course, the case that resulted in the prosecution and conviction of Michael Cohen, in which Donald Trump was identified as individual one, an unidentified or Mm -hmm. slightly unidentified but well-recognized co-conspirator. And so, yes, these investigations have gone on, but the reason to get to your question why there's the need to call for this uh, is we are hearing, as we often do when a Democratic administration comes into office, following a corrupt uh, and sometimes lawless Republican administration, none we've ever seen quite like this, but but there have been parallels in the past where there is a a quick call to turn the page, that all will be forgiven. And we are hearing uh, those calls broadly already. And you hear this phrase, we need to look forward, even for this from members of Congress that that are afraid to impeach, we need to look forward, not backwards. But First of all, the criminal justice system always, to some degree, needs to look backwards uh, to adjudicate criminal activities taking place in the past. Mm -hmm. But the bigger point here is if we really want to move forward, if we really want to restore the integrity of the Department of Justice, there must be accountability for the crimes of this administration and particularly of Donald Trump. Mm -hmm. And there must be accountability for the destruction uh, that he has created to our democracy and to the Department of Justice. Uh, and so the reason we're calling for this is, is I think there is a risk that there will be this temptation to say he's out of office and let's move on. And I yeah. think that would be a grave mistake that will invite more lawless activity, that will invite more of the kind of activity we saw uh, on Wednesday with the attack on the Capitol. Yep. I couldn't agree more, and which is why I'm so grateful uh, to uh, you guys at FSFP for always being ahead of these curves. You know, there's a lot of great groups out there. There's very few that I uh, tell our listeners to uh, please keep an eye on. Please try to support. Free Speech for People is one of them. You can find their work and uh, donate as you see fit and so forth at freespeechforpeople.org. You can and should follow them on the Twitters at FSFP. That's Free Speech for People, FSFP. And you can follow Ben on the Twitters as well. He is Ben T. 
T. Clements. Ben, always great speaking with you, sir. Keep up the good work, and I suspect we'll have a lot to talk to you about in the very near future. I'll look forward to it. Thank you very much, Brad, and thank you for the, uh, the kind words and the support. You bet. Thank you. More accountability coming up next on Bradcast Recounted with former congressman and diplomat Tom Perriello on the one key step that the U.S. must take to avoid descending into a spiral of escalating political violence. This is Bradcast Recounted. Don't touch that dial. Hey, this is Brad. If you haven't noticed by now, it's no easy feat finding facts, real facts, not alternative facts, over your public airwaves. We try to bring you real facts, truth, and clarity without fear or favor each and every day on the Bradcast. But we need your help to do it, and that help is needed more now than ever. Please stop by bradblog.com slash donate today. That's bradblog.com slash donate And thanks. You're listening to Bradcast Recounted. Welcome back to the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from Bradblog.com. Once again, our top story today, the U.S. House of Representatives has voted to impeach Donald John Trump for an historic second time. What happens next as the matter moves to the Senate is still somewhat unknown. But as we go to air, it is unknown, certainly, whether Donald Trump's second impeachment will result in real accountability for the outgoing president and whether the U.S. Senate, with a second crack at it following Trump's impeachment last year, which resulted in a rigged trial in the Senate and subsequent acquittal, largely along party lines, will end any differently this time. But whether Trump is removed from office in his few remaining days and whether Congress bars him from holding future federal office in the bargain, it will take the Joe Biden administration months and likely years to extinguish all of the administration's dumpster fires left burning, much less make sense of the ashes as needed to sort out appropriate accountability. As Boston Globe columnist Renee Graham recently observed, quote, given how laden the Trump years have been with scandals and corruption, it's been more of a crime scene than a presidency. But bringing accountability for that crime scene takes time and focus from a new presidency, particularly in the midst of several unprecedented crises, including a deadly and worsening pandemic, an economic crisis and arguably a crisis of confidence in the U.S. government itself as incited by four endless years of lies and alternative reality presented to the American people by the president of the United States himself. As The New York Times recently noted, 12 years ago when the last Democratic president took office, he did not seek broad inquiries into officials from the previous administration for their use of torture practices or for domestic eavesdropping, nor did he pursue prosecutions of Wall Street executives for crimes that led to the 2008 financial crisis. Seeking to look forward, not back, Barack Obama's party went along in the name of national unity. This time, according to The Times, Democrats who have chafed at President Trump's behavior for four years are not willing to be so accommodating. They want to hold him, his family, and his enablers accountable for acts they believe didn't just break norms, but broke the law. 
Once President-elect Joe Biden takes office on January 20, wide segments of his party are eager to see investigations and prosecutions of an array of Trump aides and allies, an effort, they say, that would bolster the rule of law after a presidency that weakened it and served as a warning to future presidents that there will be consequences for illegal actions taken while in office. To date, Joe Biden has said he would leave any decisions about launching criminal investigations to his Justice Department, which he has promised will return to the pre-Trump norm of maintaining independence from the White House. His choice of Merrick Garland, a centrist judge, as his nominee for attorney general, is another indication of his more measured approach to pursuing investigations and indictments, the Time reports. But interviews with more than 50 current and former Democratic elected officials, Democratic National Committee members and party activists found an overwhelming consensus across the party's ideological spectrum toward holding Mr. Trump personally accountable and launching congressional and Justice Department investigations into him, his family and his top aides, not only for inciting last week's violent mob at the Capitol, but for a host of other actions during his presidency. Former Representative Tom Periello, who was a special advisor for the War Crimes Tribunal in Sierra Leone, said that countries that have suffered national trauma and tried to move forward without experiencing consequences or contrition are actually unable to heal. Countries that skip the accountability phase end up repeating 100% of the time, but the next time... The crisis is worse, Mr. Periello said, in words that, frankly, not only ring hauntingly true, but actually ran a chill down my spine when I read it. The next time, the crisis is worse. People, he said, who think the way forward is to brush this under the rug, seem to have missed the fact that there is a ticking time bomb under the rug. While some legal experts suggest it would be very difficult to prose for prosecutors to charge Trump after he's out of uh, out of office, Trump's actions since the election may change that thinking. Joining us now is former Congressman Tom Periello, who once represented Virginia's 5th Congressional District. He's also a former diplomat who served as special envoy to the African Great Lakes region during the Obama administration. Congressman, welcome to the broadcast, sir, on yet another rather historic and, yes, busy day. Thank you for having me on, uh, under the circumstances. My pleasure. When we uh, when we first touched base to have you on the show, it was in regard to your insight on the existential need for nations to find their way toward accountability, following rogue criminal administrations, and what you see as essential for such action during the incoming Biden administration. But with an historic second impeachment now of Donald Trump and the attempt to remove him from office in his final days now underway. I need to quickly get your thoughts as a former congressman uh, and as a diplomat on where we are right now. Does this count as the sort of accountability that you suggest is so important for nations to heal and move forward? It's certainly a start. I think that accountability can take a lot of different forms. Um, but there's a reason that you don't have a lot of candidates out there and politicians saying they want to be the next Richard Nixon or the next Joe McCarthy. These were people who faced public accountability uh, in the form of censure, in the form of resignation, with real consequences to them. And that tends to define the path forward. Um, there's a reason that in Germany there are not statues up to Hitler and other Third Reich figures. The way in which we choose 
to understand our history and hold people to account has real consequences for uh, other leaders in the future and the actions that they are willing to take. And we have really different audiences in this case. We have the audience of current and future politicians looking at whether someone like a, a Josh Hawley is the future of the party versus an Adam Kensinger is the future of the Republican Party. You also have the dynamics of mob violence, and we know this from conflict zones. This is one of the places where criminal prosecution has the highest deterrent effect. We saw this after Charlottesville, where there were plenty of people who showed up that day on the side of hate, but really to sort of own the libs or thought it was a gas. But when people started losing their jobs, losing their lives, losing their reputations, when the same Nazis called for rallies the next weekend, uh, they completely fizzled. And I think in this case, uh, it's going to be extremely important to see the kind of consequences um, that have effects on, uh, again, a variety mm -hmm. of different audiences, from that broad group to that group of political leaders and with super ambition to, uh, again, the most extreme elements. Now, the argument that's being made in response uh, to to the uh, second impeachment of Donald Trump made by Republicans is that attempting to hold him accountable for inciting an attack and insurrection at the U.S. Capitol will only further divide the nation and incite further violence from the president's supporters. Your response to that, Congressman? Oh, I remember when these same leaders said that about Osama bin Laden, right, and said, you know, we really shouldn't anger him after attacking us because he might get even more angry. <laughs> uh, the logic of this doesn't hold up. And I think it's important to note one of the reasons that I think not only Democrats move forward, but Mitch McConnell expressed and other Republicans like Liz Cheney expressed so much concern is the insurrectionists are already planning escalations. They literally have events scheduled with uh, long guns encouraged in all state capitals on Saturday and Sunday of this weekend. Mm -hmm. So some notion that everyone was going to simply go home and, uh, and, and call it a day uh, was in fact already verifiably false, and the failure to take seriously uh, such similar provocations or, or, or promises, really, from the insurrectionists before is part of what got us into this mess. And I will say there was plenty to make my um, stomach churn and heart break about the images of these folks taking over, occupying the Capitol. Mm -hmm. um, to me, as someone who's worked in conflict zones and on transitional justice, the most scary image was them walking out not in handcuffs. Mm. Because those images were ones that simply invited the idea of impunity. And impunity leads people to repeat those events and repeat them with escalation. And allowing even a 24-hour news cycle in which the idea that these people could exit as heroes was something that was almost certainly going to lead to more violence down the road. And that's why this issue of introducing accountability is important. And again, accountability can take a lot of different forms. Arrest and prosecution is only one. But even in situations where the ultimate act has been one of forgiveness and reconciliation, it has always effectively required some act, just like in great religious traditions, of confession, contrition, and penance before you get to forgiveness. Yeah. And if you look at the South African Truth Commission, which was by no means perfect, it was only when officers came forward and um, admitted to the atrocities they had committed in the black community in particular, uh, that they were then invited to potentially have amnesty. 
And what you didn't hear from Republicans on the floor in talking about this idea of unity was any sort of olive branch. It would be very different if they were coming forward and saying, you know what, we really shouldn't have spent the last 10 years making up this systematic lie about voter fraud, and we're really sorry about the fact that we have created a set of lies and propaganda about voter fraud that undermined confidence in our elections, and we are now going to commit ourselves to universal voting for all eligible Americans on a path towards unity. That is a credible path that involves a confession, contrition, and penance Mm. uh, about a new path forward, and Mm -hmm. I think people really do want to see that right now. What they don't want to see is people who have torn this country apart um, simply turning around and saying, hey, let's just get along, but we're not going to change anything about what we did to get us in this mess. Which is interesting, because I, I, I want to, and, and thank you already for sort of broadening the conversation beyond the current moment of, uh, of Trump's second impeachment, Congressman. Uh, in the early 2000s, uh, you were a, a U.S. diplomat with the uh, U.N.-mandated special court for Sierra Leone, a consultant to the International Center for Transitional Justice in Kosovo in 2003, in Darfur in 2004, in Afghanistan in 2007. In 2015, President Obama appointed you to take over the former uh, U.S. U.S. Senator Russ Feingold, our friend, as a special envoy to the African uh, Great Lakes region and the Democratic Republic of Congo, where you helped negotiate a path to a peaceful transition of power, resolving a, a crisis that was triggered when the then president attempted to stay in office beyond his constitutional term, which sounds uh, somewhat familiar. What was there? What did you see and learn during your service as a diplomat in, in Africa in negotiating effective, peaceful resolutions and transitions uh, amid political conflict and national divide that we can now apply, that I think we must apply uh, here in the U.S.? Is, is it directly ap- applicable? Well, sadly, the comparison to President Kabila is an insult to President Kabila, but um, <laughs> I think you do see very similar patterns in these situations. If you go back to the horrific civil war in Sierra Leone, Charles Taylor, who was the dictator next door in Liberia, had negotiated and then broken, I can't even remember the number, but dozens of ceasefires and peace deals. Mm -hmm. Why? Because the U.N. diplomats would, and others, would often say, oh my God, you know, there's dying going on, therefore this this horrible person's offering a ceasefire, so of course we are pro-peace, therefore we should accept the ceasefire. The problem was he almost always would fight when he was in a position of weak of strength Mm -hmm. and then when he started to lose on the battlefield he would declare a ceasefire and use that time to rearm and re-strengthen and the second it was to his tactical advantage he would simply restart the war so you could always say wow will it be so dangerous to try to take on charles taylor Um, But in fact, when he was so much the source of the tension and the insecurity, that the only real path to peace involved accountability for him and the other warlords who had driven so much of that conflict across the region and particularly inside Sierra Leone. Now, what we were able to do in that case was get an indictment against him from a legitimate tribunal. It was Mm -hmm. actually a treaty tribunal between the country of Sierra Leone and the U.N., so it avoided some of the, some of the neo-colonial critique you've seen in other cases. And we used the legitimacy of rule of law uh, to indict a sitting head of state. And we had every single African head of state back the indictment 
um, and the importance of holding Charles Taylor accountable, which has not always been the case when things that were seen as, say, Western justice coming in, because they weren't. This was something that had support from the grassroots in the country, uh, from key uh, moral leaders in the country, and Taylor was eventually forced from power without a single bullet being fired. And at the time, you know, the uh, economists and others had written off the country as being hopeless. Mm -hmm. And um, after 11 years of civil war, and it's never returned to civil war. And when the Ebola crisis hit there a few years ago, one of my friends called and said, can you imagine the death toll if the civil war was still going Mm -hmm. on here, if we hadn't found a path to peace? Now, there was also a truth commission. There was a reconciliation effort. Um, There was a disarmament um, of the various militias. There was a lot of work to heal both those who had been victims of crimes, those who had been perpetrators. And in that case, there were many who were both victims and perpetrators because of the widespread use of child soldiers. Now, that may seem very far away, but I think there are a lot of lessons we can take from it, which is there's not a cookie-cutter approach of what makes sense in every given situation. But some form of accountability, particularly for the worst perpetrators, Mm -hmm. is the way that you you break a cycle of violence, or in our case, not just violence, but racial division and racial repression and inequality Mm -hmm. and the undermining of our democratic institutions and faith in our governing institutions. We have to call out the lies that have perpetrated that and the people that have played on that and profited on that, including the role that social media platforms have played uh, and others. And so accountability isn't just whether or not Trump goes to jail, whether or not those who enabled him are held account, but also these sort of broader questions and forms that it can take. And it wasn't pleasant to do. It wasn't easy to do. There were plenty of people who said, you know, these are very scary, powerful people. Mm-hmm. Why don't we just bring them into the tent? As a counterexample, and then I'll shut up, um, in Afghanistan, we tragically made the mistake of not doing that. When we came in after 9-11, um, many Afghans were so excited, actually, to have these oppressive uh, Taliban people pushed out. And then the, the uh, NATO alliance decided to bring back into the tent all of these horrific warlords who had been present under the previous regime, when what the people wanted was for all of these guys uh, to be held accountable for their mm. horrible atrocities and a chance for real democracy to breathe. And I was on the ground there for some of that, and you could just feel the energy go out of the project of Afghan democracy the second that we said, we're not going to do accountability, um, we're going to basically take the shortcut mm. of uh, empowering the worst actors. I can't help but notice that, at least in the uh, cases where it was a successful effort. It seems to have taken sort of outside groups working with the countries. You know, the U.S., uh, we are, as you know, we are exceptional. We we don't pay attention to anything or anybody else in the world. I mean, is there a chance? It's not like we're going to have the U.N. coming in here and helping us to sort all of this out. We sort of have to figure this out on our own. And so I'm wondering, uh, you know, how, how much of those examples abroad you know, do or don't apply uh, here under that uh, under that notion that we're going to have to do this somehow on our own, I suspect. Well, let me say a couple things on that. First of all, I was reminded today of that scene in Apollo 13 when everything is going horribly wrong and it looks like they're all going to die up in the rocket. Mm-hmm. And uh, the guy running mission control, someone says, this is going to be a disaster. And he says, you know what, I think this is going to be our finest hour. And I think this may yet be our finest hour. I think 
if we do survive four years of this racial demagogue, this real kleptocrat, right? Like he really mm-hmm. is ultimately a, a grifter and a kleptocrat willing to play on racial demagoguery. We may get through this in a week. And if we do, literally through armed insurrection, if we hold uh, the perpetrators accountable, if we move forward, particularly if the Republican Party, by which I would probably mean Republican governors, not the Republicans in, in Congress who currently seem pretty irredeemable, um, come together to address COVID and rebuild the economy, there really will be something exceptional about the fact that our Constitution and our institutions are strong enough and resilient enough to make it through what have been just a series of, of massive stress tests. So I think that would really be something that would be a finest hour moment. I think on the comparisons, look, they're very, the, one of the things that um, I've been talking about for a few years, having looked at this in our own history and around the world, is that multiracial democracy is the exception and not the rule. We've treated it as being somehow an inevitable outcome of history, hmm. by which I mean not just multi- many races and ethnicities living together, but living together on actual equality under the law mm-hmm. and equality of political power. And in American history, really around the world, there are very, very few examples of where one ethnic or racial group has lost power democratically and not responded with violence. And we've had two such moments in American history. One was the period of Reconstruction after the Civil War, when, for example, a majority of the South Carolina legislature was black. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the second was California in the 1990s when it was going through approximately the demographic shift that America as a whole is seeing today. Mm. In the case of Reconstruction, of course, the response was domestic terrorism that led to the complete ethnic cleansing or or systematic ethnic cleansing of the South that is still reflected in the political power and the political map today through mass lynchings, slaughter, uh, coups in cities, uh, etc. And in California, the... Um, you know, with Prop 187 back in, I think it was 93 or 94, mm-hmm. it was essentially like the Trump play, which was one last populist immigrant bashing play by the Republican Party to stay in power that actually drove together a multiracial alliance that is held in California um, to this day. So we have models here mm-hmm. um, that we can point to and models that have not been successful And I think this is why one of the most fascinating moments of my entire lifetime in terms of Congress was the night of the coup attempt or insurgency when Lindsey Graham and Ted Cruz Mm -hmm. have an exchange about the Compromise of 1877. I mean, this was a Lincoln-Douglas debate type Mm -hmm. moment where Ted Cruz, through his just like infinite... um, I don't even know the right word to fight. This is FCC radio, sir, so be careful. <laughs> Go ahead. So intellectualism <laughs> thinks he's got a gotcha moment by citing the Compromise of 1877, which is a horrific, horrific moment in American history in which they cut a deal to solve the problem without accountability of saying we're going to sell out Reconstruction and the idea of racial equality that leads to a century of Jim Crow, a century, uh, mm-hmm. you know, decades of lynchings in order to move forward with those electors. And Ted Cruz thinks to cite that. And Lindsey Graham, after clearly throwing back a few drinks, comes on the floor (laughs) and he says, you know, you guys may have a right to say this. I just think it's a colossally stupid thing to say (laughs) to literally 
actually come down and cite the compromise that ended Reconstruction and built Jim Crow as being the precedent you want to associate yourself with historically. Now, that's a great moment for Americans to learn, most of whom probably don't remember that from their high school uh, American history class. Let me uh, get in one more question. And I hate to, by the way, I hate to not end on your note of optimism that you think we're going to get through this and that uh, somehow uh, we'll be the better for it ultimately. But very quickly, you told the New York Times that it's vitally important for nations to not skip the reconciliation and accountability phase and the countries that do that end up repeating it 100% of the time and the crisis is uh, worse uh, when it happens again. Do you feel that the Obama administration made a mistake in, uh, you know, looking forward, not back after uh, George Bush? And more to the point here, do you have any confidence that the Biden administration might take your advice and perhaps take a different path here? I don't think they need my advice, but I think that they do have a Charlie Brown and Lucy with the football idea, which was that Obama, rightly or not, uh, the president put a lot of energy into trying for bipartisanship. People forget, we joked the first year that I was in Congress that the only way to get a meeting with President Obama was to become a Republican. Mm -hmm. He really wanted that kind of bringing the country together. And McConnell and Cantor basically just decided they wouldn't give it to him, not because they disagreed with the policy, Mm -hmm. but specifically because they didn't want him to be a unifier. And so I think what the Biden administration has learned from that is saying, look, we do want to unify the country, but that unity probably happens outside the Beltway before it happens inside the Beltway. Mm -hmm. And what they need to do is present a unifying agenda around getting every school, stadium, and small business open, getting wages up, getting prescription drug costs and housing costs down. These are all things getting, you know, a living wage. These are all things that actually unify Americans, including Republican voters, and it should include Republican governors. But as long as Republican leadership in Congress is playing a zero-sum game that they have played very successfully for over a decade, Mm -hmm. there is no path to unity because they don't want unity. So I think that what what President Biden, President-elect Biden feels in his just core is one, empathy for those who are suffering. So I think he is extremely eager to focus the energy on how do we help all of the Americans that are out of jobs, that are facing eviction, uh, that can't afford to pay their bills, that don't know uh, where their health care is coming from. That's his core thing. How do we help people that are struggling and build back a better, more inclusive American dream? The second is he really does believe in forgiveness and healing, and he knows what human suffering feels like from his own personal experiences. And he is, I think, going to be an easy sell. It is pushing on an open door the second McConnell or McCarthy want to get together and say, hey, we want to do the same thing of getting every school, small business, and stadium open, but we just love you to look at some of our ideas for it. Mm-hmm. Biden's going to open the door. He's going to pull an all-nighter. He's going to get it done with them. The second that they want that conversation, what I think he's not going to do is hold the American people hostage to them saying, we don't even want to do that. Like, we don't even want to get the economy going again. We don't even want to get wages up. We don't even want to make the American dream affordable again. So he's setting a goal of what to accomplish and inviting anyone to help put the best ideas on the table. And I think that's what unity looks like. Well, that may be what unity looks like, but it does not 
is not what accountability looks like. And if the argument is that you can't have healing without accountability, I'm just not sure how he walks that both of those fine lines at the same time. I think he needs to. I think we need to have accountability for the reasons that you say. Uh, as much as I'd like to see him reach out and work with the Republicans, I just don't know if that can both happen at the same time. And I'm not sure which will or should take priority. Look, I think there are plenty of Republican governors out there that don't really want to be associated with Donald Trump, particularly if he's facing both criminal and civil prosecution when he leaves office, which he almost certainly will be. And I think the issue for Biden right now probably is not will he pursue accountability of Trump, but will he in any way stand in the way of accountability for Trump? And I think that it is important for the country that he allow that to happen, and I think it's not insignificant that Merrick Garland, who you correctly described as being pretty centrist as an attorney general, cut his teeth being the most successful prosecutor of domestic terrorism um, in the last century, going after both the Unabomber and the Oklahoma City bomber. So this is someone who knows and takes very seriously threats to our national security, both foreign and domestic. And I think, you know, that is very important, and that can be a process as we saw after Charlottesville, where I'm from, and I was in the streets that day, that it was a process of not just arresting but bankrupting these networks. And there were a lot of people that were thought it was kind of cool to be associated with um, some of these hateful figures, but they were nowhere to be found a year later when those people became uh, toxic. So I think, you know, what we want to do is draw the line where it should be, which is, are you serious about American democracy and about solving America's problems? And if so, bring your best ideas to the table. And if you're not, if you're just interested in hateful demagoguing, then, you know, better luck next time. Well, there you go. We will take your uh, optimistic thought about uh, Judge Garland, soon to be hopefully uh, Attorney General Garland. I will take that optimistic note that he will bring accountability to the domestic terrorists that uh, we are now looking at in this country. Tom Perriello is a former diplomat and congressman from Virginia's great 5th District. He is now the executive director of the Open Society Foundation for the U.S. You can find them at OpenSocietyFoundations.org. You can find Tom on the Twitters at Tom Perriello, and you can find Open Society there as well. They are simply Open Society on the Twitters. Mr. Perriello, great uh, speaking with you today. I hope you don't mind if we give you a shout down the road in the near future when we find out if you were right or wrong about all of this. All right, please stay safe. Thanks, Tom. And that's all for today's edition of Broadcast Recounted. Thanks to our guests, former federal prosecutor Ben Clements of Free Speech for People and former congressman and diplomat Tom Perriello of the Open Society Foundation U.S. And of course to you for spending part of your day or night with us. If you missed any portion of today's broadcast or any other, you can download it anytime for free at bradblog.com. And that service is made possible by those of you who stop by bradblog.com slash donate to help us continue to stay completely independent on your public airwaves during these historic, unprecedented times. Follow and share us worldwide on the Facebooks and the Twitters at The Brad Blog. Drop us an email if you like and tell us what you think at bradcast at bradblog.com. We'll be back soon. Until we meet again, I'm Bradcast producer Desi Doyen. And as Brad likes to say, good luck, world. (laughs) 